Have you ever wondered if God is real? Some mysteries are worth investigating. Mystery Manor. That is a, a new uh, children's ministry series we're going to be doing in a couple of weeks, uh, so kids can get excited about Mystery Manor. I've uh, gone through with Ginger, and it's a pretty exciting thing. So a um, lot going on in kids' ministry this summer, which I'm excited about. Um, one, because that's good, but two, also because I have kids that are thrilled as well. So um, thanks for being, this, being here with us this morning. It's a, it's a good time to sit and to think and to open God's Word. Let me open us in prayer, uh, and we'll begin. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity we have to be here together. Uh, God, as we um, sit next to one another, as we rub shoulders, as we get to know each other, I ask, Lord, that you, your will would be done in this church. I ask that your word would be spoken now as we look at your, your scripture. Uh, God, we ask that you would be honored by, by the type of bride that we are uh, at Grace Chapel. Lord, we love you, uh, and sometimes we don't really know what's next, uh, but we trust you, God, and we thank you for being trustworthy. In your name, amen. Well, I have something to confess to you guys. Um, so here's the thing. I'm going to get this out of the way early in the message so you guys know where I stand on it. I don't like pain. I'm not a fan of pain. I don't like to be uncomfortable. I'm not one of those guys who likes to, you know, climb a mountain just to climb a mountain. Um, I have to have a reason. Um, so, so because of that, um, we're going to talk about something uncomfortable today. So, hello there. Welcome to Grace Chapel, where we talk about uncomfortable things. So, hope you, uh, hope you enjoy our uncomfortable topic. Now, we have been going through marriage. Now, that's not the uncomfortable topic. My wife's not here, but I, can, I, I need to be careful. Uh, marriage isn't uncomfortable. The uncomfortable thing is sacrifice, and we're going to talk about that. But we've been going through this marriage series, um, and it's been a, a great series. We're in week three, uh, and, and just to kind of catch you up to speed in case you've missed one or two of them, or maybe this is your first time to hear the series, um, this marriage series is for you. And you might go, wait a minute. If you're married, it's for you. If you're not married, it's for you. If you don't ever want to be married, it's for you. Maybe you've been married and it was the worst three weeks of your life. <laughs> Maybe you've been married and it was the best 60 years of your life. And now that it's over, you don't know if you will find joy again. If any of those scenarios are you, and more that I didn't think of, this, this series is for you. And the reason it's for you. Is because, is because God uses all kinds of things to describe his character and who he is to us. And if we pay attention, we can learn a little bit more about him. This is especially true about marriage. And this is one of the reasons why we're going through it. As God would have it, the relationship Christ has with those who love him or trusted him um, is often compared to marriage in Scripture. Um, so we would be foolish if we would ignore this lesson before us just because we aren't in a marriage ourselves. There's so much to be learned from marriage. We can learn how to be children of God. We can learn how Christ views his bride. We can learn um, how to treat each other. That's a big one. How do we treat each other now that we understand how Christ views us? We can learn how to view the local church, and maybe more importantly, we can learn how to be a part of the local church, his bride. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. Men, 
You'll never be a good groom to your wife unless you're first a good bride to Jesus. Now that's true about men, and I think that's something we can learn from, but, but maybe you're not a man and maybe, maybe you don't have a wife. It's still something that we can learn. And it's good to be a good bride to Christ. The reason for this series is so that we can be a good bride. We can learn how to be a good bride for Christ. And if we pay attention, the bonus, the bonus is we can be good husbands. We can be good wives. We can be good friends. We can be good family members. We can be good church members. We can learn all of that if we pay close attention. So there's one thing that I want to do really quick in the middle here. Um, If you are a deacon at Grace Chapel this past year and you are coming off the board uh, this new year, can you stand up for me? A couple of you. There's one in the back. Michael's already standing. Here's Frank. There's Tom. Okay, you guys just stay right where you are for just a minute. I won't embarrass you too much, but I will embarrass you a little bit. It is so important to recognize the people in this body that have sacrificed for us in the name of Jesus. Can we just give them a round of applause? Thank you. Thank you. You guys can sit down. I'll stop embarrassing you, but I'm going to keep talking about you. It's important to recognize them, and it's important for many reasons. But the biggest reason is that we understand that God called them and they answered to do that. They answered this call. They gave time. They probably gave money. They gave a ton of effort. And they have made sacrifices for the sake of the bride. And this is true not only with these deacons that are coming off the board. It's true with the deacons that are coming on the board. It's true of our elder board. It's true of our staff. And it's true of the countless people that go unthanked every day of the year that serve in the local church. So, on behalf of Grace Chapel, and on behalf of God, thank you guys for the service that you've given. I really mean that. With that, let's dig into our passage. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27. It's a good one. Verse 25, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So here we have Paul saying, Christ did this so that you would be blameless. It seems probably maybe like a simple statement to us because we've all grown up knowing what Christ did for us, knowing probably to some extent who God is and how much he loves us. But for the people reading this letter, it was radical. And I'll tell you two ways that it was radical. This is what is considered one of the most spiritually radical statements someone could read in this time period. And you go, well, come on, Josh, it doesn't seem that radical. We know Jesus loved the church, and we know that he died for the church. Is is it really that radical? It is, and I'll tell you why. Because if you were a normal person, maybe you were the neighbor of one of these people that were part of this church, or or you were the, the local government official, 
or, or, or you, are, you are somebody who brings crop into the market every few months. What kind of gods would you worship? See, we have the, the Greek pantheon of gods that the Romans and, and people of the day worshipped, and they added on a bunch of other gods. And there, there were thousands of gods. In fact, there were so many gods these people worshipped, the people that worshipped them couldn't even tell you how many there were. We have historians that are still discovering new gods that this people in this time period worship. Here's the thing. The vast majority of these gods and the common belief about these gods was that they were angry, they were self-absorbed, and they were distracted and unconcerned by these little annoying things called humans. And it was a common worship practice for every god to be worshipped in this spiritual structure. It was common practice that you would have to wake them up, you would have to not annoy them, and you would have to convince them that you were really suffering, and hopefully they would find it in their weird, unconcerned heart to care for you. Now, if you were a farmer, you had to constantly worship the god of crops, the god of grains, the god of harvest, the god of weather, on and on and on the list would go. If you got an injury, you would have to find out what god that injury was associated with, and you would have to try to convince that god to heal you. So the common concept of the day was that you have to convince these deity or these gods that you were worth saving. And so then you have Paul writing a letter to this church. There's, there's, there's a new game in town. And there's a new God that we need to pay attention to. And this God is Savior first. That's not just the thing he did. That's part of his identity. He is the saving God. And that caught people's ear. Wait, he's a saving God? He's not a snoring God like all of our gods? Side note, they literally had a prayer, a common prayer, to wake up the God you were trying to get to. That was a common prayer you would pray before you would actually pray to the God that you were concerned about to wake them up because they slept a lot, apparently. This God was a savior first. And he cared, this is, this is radical, he cares for his people. That's not that radical, but he cares for his people before his people knew they were his people. Before these people even knew about God, the, 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 the understanding that Paul gives them is that this God cares about you. This God cares about you before you were born. That is so radically different. And it gets better. He sent his son to die for your purity. He, he sent his son to die for your holiness as an atoning sacrifice. Usually the person had to supply the sacrifice and, and let your imagination run wild with the kind of special things these people would sacrifice to try to communicate to these angry gods that they were worth saving. But the story's reversed. This God did that for his people. He sacrificed his only son so that not only these people could go to heaven someday, the afterlife, but so that they could know redemption, love, and value today. 
that is one of the most spiritually radical things this people group had ever even imagined. This statement doesn't stop there. There's some social radicalism in, in this th- too. And, and we might read over it because we have a different understanding of the family unit and of, of husband and wife, but the social radicalism is women and wives and servants and manservants and eunuchs and children and slaves, they all existed in this time period to sacrifice for the man, for the husband. Now, before we jump to conclusions and go, oh my gosh, what a horrible time to live in, it actually was a very law-organized, understanding way of life. It's just that the men had a different plan. They had a different set of rules they, they lived by. They had to live by rules, and if they broke the rules, bad things happened. But they had a set of rules, and it was just a different set of rules than everyone else. <laughs> and, and to be perfectly honest, the wives were at like the top of the other, every other person list, but they were still below the man. See, this was a man-dominated society. A different set of rules applied to men. And, and actually, it wasn't so much that women in, sp- in, in particular were treated poorly. It was just everyone was treated poorly except the man, which is not fair. You're right. Now, here's an interesting side note. There was a law in place in Rome at this time. If a woman had three successful live births, she had the authority and the right, the legal right, to leave her husband and start out on her own. So even Roman law had a way for a woman to say, you know what, I'm done being taken advantage of, I'm going to do my own thing. But if you look at mortality rate, if you look at live birth rate of this time period, it was a very rare thing to have three children that were alive. And that's a scary, sad thing. But it was so rare that they said, hey, if a lady pulls that off, she needs to be doing her own household. She needs to be doing her own thing. So it really wasn't actually that fair. Now, so we have spiritual radicalism. We have social radicalism. Paul seems to have turned almost everything on its head. But how, how about us? We've all heard this passage. Most of you have probably heard this passage. Many of us, myself included, have always assumed that since Christ died for the church, he gave himself up for the church for me so, so that I could be saved, that was his sacrifice. And if you said, oh, Christ's sacrifice, immediately I think of the cross. And, and rightfully so. Most of us are that way. And so I compare this little passage to me and my wife. And because I'm a typical man, I take everything to the extreme. And so I read this passage and I go, okay, so, if a big bad guy comes in here with a gun and he points it at my wife and he says, I'm going to kill her, I'm supposed to stand in front and die for my wife, right? That's the extreme scenario. And I think, well, if that doesn't happen, then I guess I'm off the hook. I just need to be willing to do that for her. But it does, it's not actually that simple. Men go to the extreme. We always think about the actual death part. And, and for me, I think of the thing that Christ did for me ends with death and, and resurrection. Christ died for me so that I could be saved, and, and now he's at the right-hand throne of God, and, and he's good. He's done. Thank you, Jesus. Appreciate the work you did. I will be forever grateful. Now that I'm saved, I'm free to live my life. But that's a very, very small 
perspective of salvation. You see, the interesting thing about Christ's death is it doesn't end with his death or even his resurrection. What Christ has done for his bride starts with death and resurrection. And every minute of every day, Christ is sacrificing himself for our sake, for our purity. And it goes on and on into eternity. You might say, now hang on a second, Josh. This passage literally says husbands. And we know from Scripture a husband is a man. So, so obviously he's only talking about men. But the thing is, is that Paul says this is a profound mystery. And Paul says, even in this passage, it's a profound mystery because I'm talking about Christ in the church. So we think he's talking about men who are married and are good men, and, and, and this is the way you treat your wife. And that's true, but it just starts there. Now, it's a profound mystery. But what if we took a bigger perspective of this idea that men give themselves up for their wives? What if we grew that perspective a little bit? And with our perspective that we have with the series, what if we all gave ourselves up for each other in order to make uh, those around us more holy, to purify the church? We, in turn, sacrificed ourselves. It doesn't matter if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're a child, if you're a young person, if you're married, if you're not, if you're never going to be. What if this attitude we adopted, what would happen I think the church would radically be changed. That's what I think would happen. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Josh is talking about sacrifice. He he confessed in the beginning that he doesn't like sacrifice. He doesn't like being uncomfortable. I would assume most of us are that way. So what does the Bible say about this sacrifice thing? Well, James talks about it. Paul is talking about it. James also talks about it. And he talks about it in James chapter 1, 2 through 4. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Wow. So James literally is asking us to be happy about sacrifice, about pain, about trials. Because we have the end goal in mind. Now, there is a big difference between Paul saying, husbands, give yourself up for your wife willingly. Volunteer to die for your wife. And by the way, that's what Christ did for the church. And James saying, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because there's this volunteer concept. When we sacrifice, we go, hey, I'll I'll take that. And when a trial comes upon us, we have no choice. But the interesting thing is, is the pain itself we can actually be joyful about. Because we know what's happening. We know from the, we could rise up out of it and we can see the long-term gain. Maybe the situation you're going through in your life right now is too big. It's too difficult. It's too painful for you to rise up out of it and say, I know what's going to happen in the end so I can be joyful about it. That's an argument for community. That's an argument for friends to surround you to say, listen, I know it's hard right now and we're here for you, but you got to know God is good. And things are going to happen in your life and in the afterlife that will be good. 
the maturity that James talks about in this passage is the process of purification in the passage that Paul talks about. Paul talks about in Ephesians the washing without stain or wrinkle, the holy and blamelessness that the church will become because of his sacrifice. That's what the, the trial produces in James' version. When life is hard, good things can come from it. See, God is a recycler. He never wastes a single experience. He will produce good things out of your circumstances if you allow him to. If what you're going through is really a really hard season right now, don't let it go to waste. Let God use it to purify you so that you are blemish-free. Seeing the challenges in your life as growth opportunities is, well, challenging. I've tried. It feels like a brick wall. It feels like you're beating your head against a brick wall when life is really hard. That's the time we're supposed to be positive. It's incredibly difficult. But we can take hope. No matter what's going on in your life, you can take hope. Because these are Jesus' words in John 15, 12 through 13. He says, my command is this. He's talking to his disciples. Love each other as I have loved you. This mismatched rebel band of people that really should not get along. He says to them, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then Jesus went to the cross and died on their behalf and on our behalf. Greater love has no one than this than to lay one's life down for his friends. When we put it into that perspective, when we sacrifice ourselves for our spouse, for our friends, for our family, for our church, that is a perfect reflection, maybe almost perfect reflection of Christ and what he did for his bride. And when we do that, it puts a smile on Christ's face because we're acting just like him. Sure, we don't do it perfectly. Sure, we have a sin nature that gets in the way. But we're trying. We're trying to be like our big brother, Jesus. So our response to Christ the groom's sacrificial love is thankful obedience. When someone does this for you, you don't just say thanks. The disciples didn't witness what Christ did on the cross for them with these words ringing in their head and go, Great. Appreciate he did that. I'll see you next Sunday. <laughs> no. They in turn gave themselves up for the thing that Christ wanted, the bride to be blemish and perfect, blemish-free and perfect. When someone sees that, they start to ask the question, what can I do? Not to repay, because this thing is way too big to repay. But what can I do to communicate I appreciate it? What can I do to say, I know, and I thank you? I, what can I do to even say, I don't even understand how big, but I'm appreciative. Thank you. That's where we are today. Sacrifice is always part of the equation. I talk to people that want church to be perfect. 
I talk to people that, that get unsatisfied with the earthiness of church, with the mistakes that I make or that we make, and they get frustrated with that. And I just want to hold them and go, listen, Jesus died for this thing called the church. He died for it. So what's our response? Eh, is that our response? Or is our response, what can I do? What can I do to say thank you? And I made these deacons stand and I told them I was going to talk about them again. They, they have said, hey, I think I have something that I can do. I have something inside of me, a gift set, a talent set, something, and I'm going to offer it to God as a way to say, hey, I'm going to sacrifice for the bride. I want to help. I want to be a part of the solution. And God sees that. And he says, yes, that's a step in the right direction. That is the model, church. And I'm here to tell you it's uncomfortable. If you sat down with any of these deacons and said, tell me about your experience, they're going to have really great stories, and then they're going to have really sad and painful stories. Because that's the church. That's what happens. There's tough stuff that has to be forgiven and, and overlooked and bo born with. That's our response. Here's the main idea. Sacrifice. Sacrifice is an illustration of how Christ values his bride, the church. So when you think about Christ's sacrifice for you, for us, the church, you need to think, that's how valuable I am. That's how valuable Grace Chapel is in all its imperfections, in its all in its rabbit trails that we always seem to run down and go, oh man, we made a mistake, we got to come back. In all of that ugliness, that's how valuable we are. And our response is not one of, let me pay that back for you, Jesus. It's a, what do I have to do to tell you thank you? Because I'm here to tell you, an hour and a half, two hours on a Sunday morning, doesn't really cut it. And I don't know what cuts it. I'll be honest. I don't even know what says thank you. But I think it starts with, Jesus, help me understand. Help me see. Do you want me to be a deacon? Do you want me to be an elder? Do you want me to be a, a life group leader? Do you want me to just sit in a really awkward life group for six months going, these people, I don't really know them and it's uncomfortable and I'm giving up by Thursday night and uh, Yes. That's just, just a couple steps into it. Sacrifice is an illustration of how Christ values his bride, the church. And when we get the chance, when we get the chance to sacrifice for our spouses, for our friends, for our church, we need to remember that sentence. When you sacrifice, the fingerprints of Christ's sacrifice are on it. And it makes him proud. Sacrifice is an illustration of how Christ values his bride, the church. If we can see sacrifice as a reflection of Christ and his value, it gives our tough moments, our tough seasons, our tough life, if that may be the case, meaning. 
the pain you feel from the situation you're in, it gives it meaning when you put it in the perspective of Christ died for you because you're valuable. He died for the church because it's valuable to him. You see, otherwise we have this idea of like, I just don't mean anything. I'm not worth anything. I'm, I'm like valueless. I'm just going through these hard situations and, and it, it's just, it seems to be pointless. But when you look at it from, this, from the standpoint of this illustration is Christ's value, you go, no, 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 no. I mean so much to him that he died for me. And he didn't just die for me, he died for you. He died for all of us. That's our value. See, tough situations can not only have meaning, they can also allow us to impact the kingdom. So, so we can be like little examples of Christ's sacrifice. And you might think, oh man, I don't, I don't have the talent, I don't have the ability, I don't have the energy to impact the kingdom. What does that even mean? All it means is you respond to the sacrifice with, Lord, help me communicate my thankfulness. Let's just take the family unit as an example. When you go through financial hardships, some parents that say, I don't want my kids to know anything about that. They're too young. They're too innocent. I don't want them to see me sweating bullets till 2 a.m. wondering what's going to happen. You could plug in any tough situation in a family. Mom and dad aren't getting along so well. I don't want them to see that. And there's some wisdom there. Kids are young. They're innocent to a degree. <laughs> but if we allow them to see it a little bit, they learn from it. And they get to see, oh, that's how you consider it joy when mom and dad face bankruptcy. You consider it joy because you know what God's going to do. Because you know the value Christ has put on you. Wow, when mom and dad are going through a hard time relationally, we can consider it joy because of what God is going to do. You can teach them to put their hope into the future of what God said he's going to do. Watching mom and dad handle hard situations will teach them how to handle those situations when they're in it. Seeing Christ sacrifice himself for the bride gives us, the, 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 the bride, a reasonable understanding of how to do it for others. Does mom and dad go to the Lord with their tough stuff? Or do they try to fix it themselves? When the church is going through tough situations, what does the church do? Does it try to fix it? Or does it go to Jesus and say, help us? It's the same thing. It is so important that we see sacrifice as an illustration of how Christ values his bride because it gives this bride a way to communicate value to those around us. If we choose to value each other the same way, the world is going to see it. Now, what do we need to do? I think what we need to do isn't a secret. <laughs> you just have to read through Ephesians 5 to know if you're identifying yourself with the, the groom... <laughs> He gives himself up. He sacrifices. He looks for opportunities to sacrifice. And maybe he can just barely communicate the value of the person he's sacrificing for. 
if he tries really hard, they might get it. They might go, wow, he values me. We're called to give ourselves up like Christ did for his bride. And I think we are all called to that. Sacrifice is to be present in our marriages, in our friendships, in our family, and definitely in our church. So how do we give ourselves up as Christ did for the church? That's the question. I think it starts with how we view ourselves. Because if you don't think you're valuable, sacrifice is not going to be even in your vocabulary. If you think you are worthless, or maybe just a step above worthless, if you think that, what are you going to sacrifice? You've got nothing to sacrifice. You have to view yourself the way God views you. And he is madly in love with you. He didn't even waste a second deciding that he was going to die for you. In fact, it was planned before the beginning of time. Yeah, this is what I'm going to do. This is obviously how valuable these people are. And I imagine Christ counting down the days so that he could be present with us, he could walk with us, he could die for us, and he could raise from the grave for us. That's what he means to you. So when a, a sacrificial opportunity presents itself and your instinct is, what do I have? I got nothing. I'm not valuable. I can barely keep out of debt or whatever the struggle is. Remember how Christ views you. So this starts with how we view ourselves. See yourself the way he sees you. It's got to start there. And if you're having a problem with that, if you're having like a translation issue, <laughs> and, and you're struggling, and, and you're, you're in this room right now, come see me. Come see me. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what you're worth. Okay? Go to a good friend. Go to a family member. And they'll tell you what you're, val what you're worth. The next step is then to view others the way God views you. So you start to view others the way you know God views you. And then the last one, the one we all knew was coming, give yourself up for these people. And you might say, well, what does that look like? I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I know what it looks like for me. And that's because God is in my heart and he's saying, hey, give yourself up for that person, for that person, for that person. Not that person. No, no, I'm kidding. Sometimes it looks like time for me. Sometimes it looks like money for me. But I think there's other ones there, like energy. You know how valuable energy is in today's society with all the things that are going on? You know how valuable someone's energy is? You can't buy energy. I don't care how much money you have. What about giving up energy for someone? Giving up comfort. You're sitting in a life group, and it seems to drone on and on, and you look around the room, and you go, I don't really know these people. It's uncomfortable, but it's okay. Because you're sacrificing. You're saying, no, it's worth it. You guys are worth it. I'm not talking about my life group. Many of my life group people are in here. Of course I'm not talking about my life group. What about social status? Giving up social status. 
It's there. Classify yourself a Christian at work, and you might drop a couple rankings on the Facebook status board. What about giving that up? I think a life group is what I usually think of when I think of sacrifice. Because you're giving up an evening. You're giving up social comfort to some degree. You're having to invest in people you not, might not know well. And just like any investment, it takes time. And before you know it, you're going to be willing to take a bullet for those people. <laughs> and we talk about sacrifice, especially in the, in the confounds of marriage or from the perspective of marriage. It is, it is a sheer miracle that we get to take communion today. Because this is exactly what we're talking about. And this is what communion was designed to do. So when we come together as a church, as Christ's bride, we're, we're twiddling our thoughts, we're, 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 we're waiting, we're counting down the days for our groom to come back to us. He promised. He said he was coming back. And we're waiting for it. And one of the last things the groom said to the bride before he left was, take communion. Remember me, because I'm coming back. And the good news is, and, and what I do when I take communion, I think about, there'll come a time where I won't have to take communion anymore. I won't have to be reminded in this symbolic way of Christ's sacrifice, because he's going to be with me, and I won't need it. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, do this until he comes back, because you won't need to after that. Communion's a beautiful thing to participate in because we bear witness to Christ's sacrifice. And I think it should remind us, I need to sacrifice in order to say thank you. And, and communion is something Christ asked us to do. And we do it to keep it fresh on our minds. Here at Grace, we do it once a month. It reminds us of his sacrifice, his love, and his return for his bride. And if you're new, or maybe you haven't been around in a while, the way we take communion here is I'm going to read a passage and I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to come down, and I'm going to take the elements myself, and I'm going to sit. And the band will be here to play. And as they play, think about this. Let it saturate your soul. Deep down inside, what does it mean that your groom died for you? Because that's what communion is about. And when you're ready, when you're ready, come forward, participate in this wonderful thing we call communion. And remember that the groom is coming back. Now he's going to make it all okay. Listen to this passage written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came to earth. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. We are the pure and blameless bride because of what he did for us. And we thank him for it.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't know how long we have to wait. We don't know if we'll die waiting for you to come back. But you promised that you would come back. And we, the expectant bride, are so excited for that. Lord, as we look at marriage, we think about marriage, the way you designed it, what your word says about it, I ask that it would teach us. It wouldn't just teach us how to be better spouses, but it would teach us how to be better people of this church. It would teach us how to be better followers of you because we understand what you've done for us and we understand what our response is back to you. Lord, I love this church and I love these people. And I ask that you would teach us all how to sacrifice for each other so that your bride, us, can be blameless and pure. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for valuing us before we were even born. Jesus, we love you. Amen.